0: Today's reading is from Revelation 3, verses 14 to 22. To the church in Laodicea. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and the true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say... I am rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person, and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Hey, good morning, uh, LLC. Uh, We're continuing on in our sermon series uh, on the book of Revelations. And I'm not sure how you've been finding it, uh, but it's really been quite a journey for me already. Uh, this, as we we're preaching through the first uh, three chapters, you're like, wow, you know, it's, a lot has happened already uh, in, in the three chapters. And the rate that, that we're going, uh, Jesus might just come back uh, before <laughs> uh, we finish the book. And I'll just someone's joking with me. He's like, well, wouldn't it be something if you finished the book of Revelations and that's when he arrives? I'm like, well, just because you said that, I know it's not going to be that day, okay? So uh, no one knows uh, when Jesus uh, will be back. Uh, but I hope it's been good. Uh, we're gonna take a little bit of a break in the next few weeks as we go into uh, uh, Easter. So next week will be Palm Sunday, and then uh, we'll enter into Holy Week, and then Easter Sunday, uh, e- Good Friday, and Easter Sunday, and all of that. And then we'll come back and revisit uh, the, the we'll revisit we'll dive back into the Book of Revelations, uh, starting with Chapter Four, the Throne Room. So I'm excited for that. I uh, don't miss I uh, don't miss uh, that sermon as we get a glimpse into the Throne Room of Heaven. So the first week of of spring break, I got a chance, uh, our family got a chance to go down to Seattle. We spent five days there, and I'm not sure if you know, but if you have a, I don't work for Science World, but if you have a Science World membership, uh, your membership works uh, down there as well, and a few of the uh, children's museums and Science Center, uh, where we had a chance to go, and we hung out at the uh, Seattle Pacific, I think it's called, uh, Seattle Pacific Science Center. And as with many science centers, there's uh, mirrors that teach about reflection, distortions, and uh, we run around taking photos of each other uh, and having a good time like that. That's, uh, yeah, our family and the the three kids just staring at each other, uh, laughing. Uh, So uh, it's interesting. As I was going there and learning about reflection and refraction and the purposes of mirrors, it got me thinking about how in the the book of Revelation, it really has been a mirror uh, for our own spiritual life, hasn't it? That... As I've been saying this before, that when we read Scripture, Scripture is really reading us. In a sense, it's, 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 it's revealing what's going on in our spiritual lives and what's going on in our hearts. You see, with, the, with mirrors, as I'm, you know, I have a mirror here. That's, that's what was flashing in my, in my eyes. Uh, with, with mirrors, often, as you look into the mirror, it, it just reveals what's, wow, what is revealing. Uh, what's, <laughs> I kid, I kid. Uh, what, what's it just reflects to you what's happening on the outside, what you see on the outside. That's what mirrors do. But with Scripture and with God, he looks way beyond what just the mirror sees. I'm going to put this away. Uh, what, what the mirror sees. God sees in, into our hearts. He doesn't just care about the outside. He doesn't just care about what we look like and what we do and all the activity that we have. But he cares about what's happening deep down inside of us. And as I was mentioning, we were, we we're in a, cur- a series on the book of Revelation called Future and Focus, because we believe that if we see the future in focus now, it helps us to see reality right now as how it actually is, uh, through the spiritual realm, how God would have us to see it. And today we're in Revelations 3, 14, 22, on the last of the seven letters to the churches, and this one's addressed to the church in Laodicea, which you see here is the uh, modern day ruins. As British uh, pastor and preacher G. Campbell Morgan entitled uh, this sermon, he called it The Church with Christ on the Outside. The Church with Christ on the Outside. Ouch. Remember, it's 96 A.D., And the Christians are being persecuted left, right, and center in the Roman Empire. And there's this Roman, uh, this uh, emperor cult worship that if you don't uh, worship the emperor Domitian, then you would be executed and persecuted and, and tortured. But the apostle John, he just wouldn't shut up about Jesus like many of the disciples back in the day because he knew what he saw, he knew what he experienced in Christ, and he had to proclaim it, had to share it. So they couldn't shut him up, they couldn't kill him either, so they exiled him on an island called Patmos, on this pile of rubble where he will live out the rest of his life. Where there, Jesus, though, allowed John to see what's actually going on spiritually, spiritually in the world, despite what was happening to him physically. Again, reminding us that though God's people can be killed, can be tortured, can be locked away, locked away Jesus has a way of working uh, Jesus has a way of moving. Jesus has a, has a way of using his people even in the most impossible situations. Nothing can ultimately stop the gospel from moving forward. And the big idea for us this morning is this. Opening wide the door to Jesus overcomes lukewarm faith. Because Jesus is greater than all things. If you want to shorten that, opening wide the doors of, uh, to Jesus overcomes lukewarm faith. That the call for us this morning is to have a deep reflection and to see, do we have a relationship with Christ? Have we allowed Jesus into our lives? You see, how do we let Jesus into our lives? It's pretty Straightforward, actually, if you've been in the church world uh, for any moment, uh, any, any length of time, it's fairly straightforward. We've heard it before by doing things like trusting in Him and surrendering our lives to Jesus. We do it by repenting, meaning turning away from the path that we're walking in a direction we're walking and turning the other way. Uh, we lead our hearts, uh, our sinful hearts end up leaning towards Jesus and putting our faith in Him as our Lord and our Savior. We pray. We read. We study the Word of God. We obey His teachings every day. We regularly participate in the local church, uh, whether it's in fellowship or in communion. uh, We support and love and correct one another so that our faith can grow. Now, all of that, I think for many of us that have been in a church for any length of time, that wouldn't have been new for you. It's pretty straightforward. Actually, practically, it's pretty straightforward to allow Jesus in, but the question I'm hoping to address today, and I think the text addressed today, is why don't we do it? Why do we not lean in? Why do we not open up? Why do we have this wrestling that's going on inside of us? Why don't we swing wide the the, the doors of our heart to allow Jesus in? Bit of a roadmap, uh, four points for us uh, to make it through this text this morning to open a door. Number one, to open the door, we must first know who stands outside. Number two, lukewarmness endangers our faith and limits our experience of God. Number three, self-sufficiency blinds us to our need for God and leads to spiritual bankruptcy. Number four, encountering Jesus surpasses all earthly treasures and brings unmatched joy and purpose. I hope that rings. I worked hard on those sentences. (laughs) Number one. To open the door, we must first know who stands outside. When we first moved into our home uh, after the renovation and whatnot, I heard I was eating, uh, I, I, was, I, was, I was eating a late night snack as I often do and shouldn't be doing. But I was sitting on the couch and I heard a loud bang on the door, like three three knocks, boom, boom, boom. Police. <laughs> and then I was like, what was that, and I thought, for some reason, I thought that was Jess, I don't know why, uh, I don't know why my wife would do something like that, but from, I'm like, Jess, was that you, like, you know, yelling that, and then I went down, I went outside, and uh, and then I saw a car sp- speed away, and I opened the door, turn on, turned on the lights, and then there was a half-eaten cheeseburger uh, on a uh, on my doormat. And I wanted to, I don't know their kids, how old they were. I wanted to grab the cheeseburger and like grab a bite of it and show them. They're like, you, you think that scares me? You know, you come back, you know. But most of the time when you, someone knocks on the door, you don't open it. If you don't know who they are, right? Uh, if, you, if someone knocks on the door and you don't know who they are, you're not going to open the door. But here we see, uh, we, we see who this Jesus actually uh, actually is. Oh, I might be missing a slider. I don't know. If you can jump forward. If I have verse 14 up there, you can uh, put it up. If not, don't worry about it. In verse 14, uh, the, the, the text starts in this way. This is who's knocking at the door, okay? Now, to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, these are the words of the amen, the faithful and the true witness and the ruler of God uh, of God's creation. The ruler of God's creation. This is the person that is knocking at the door, the Amen, the faithful, the true witness, the ruler of God's creation, and Jesus—he's been revealing Himself uh, in very particular ways so far. If you go to the next slide for me, He reveals Himself in a very particular way. Uh, in to the Church of Ephesus, He—if you can read that. Um, Follow along, if not, just hear my words. Uh, to the church in Ephesus, these are the words of Him who holds the seven stars in His right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Revelations two o one. To the church in Smyrna, these are the words of Him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. Revelations two eight. To the church in Pergamum, these are the words of Him who has the sharp, double edged sword. Revelations 2.12, to the church in Thyatira, these are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze, Revelations 2.18. To the church in Sardis, these are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. To the church in Philadelphia, these are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. And here, in the seventh letter to the churches, Jesus refers to Himself as the Amen, the Amen. As Darrell Johnson writes in his uh, in his book, a "Discipleship on the Edge," in our day, the modern uh, in our day, the word seldom means more than a period at the end of a prayer. But in Hebrew thought, saying Amen is a way of acknowledging that something is valid and binding. Yes, this is valid, and it binds my conscience. Saying amen is a way of saying that something is utterly trustworthy, a foundation upon which to build. Or Craig Keener in his NIV commentary, the title, The Amen, reflects a Jewish sense of completeness and finality. Jesus, as the amen, is the final word, the ultimate, complete, and faithful manifestation of the truth of God. And Jesus says he is the amen. He is the amen. He is the, the source of all things that are true. He is trustworthy. He is the foundation of life itself. He is the amen, and he, he is faithful, and he's the true witness. He's the, in other translation, he is the genuine article, the genuine article. There is no falsehood falsehood in him at all. And even more so, who is this one that's knocking at the door? He's the ruler of God's creation. And the word for ruler here is arhe, which is where we get the word archetype from. He's the first. He's the first of all things. He's the first within a sequence of events. Before all things that you see, Jesus was already there. He is standing there knocking at the door. And as we go a little bit deeper into how this lukewarmness kind of forms in our lives, we see this, that this lukewarmness that we're about to talk about, this lukewarmness that we're about to talk about comes when Jesus is excluded from the equation of faith. And when Jesus is outside of your life, of your faith, or the faith that we think we're living, that's how lukewarmness forms. And Jesus here is telling the Laodiceans that all of life is founded upon him. So if you don't have me, you don't ultimately have life. That the church in Laodicea was living out this faith that they thought was faith, but Jesus was actually on the outside. Now, we might, we might remember what the Apostle Paul says in Colossians 1, 15 to 17. I'll read it for us and I'll explain why I'm bringing this up. In, in chapter 1, verse 15 to 17, Colossians, Paul says, the sun is the image of the invisible God the firstborn over all creation, for in him all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Verse 17, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Amen. (laughs) See, this was a message for Laodicea too, because... There are three cities that were very close together back in the day. Colossae, which is where the letter Colossians were written to. Colossae, Hierapolis, the city of ten little cities, and also Laodicea. And they, these cities, had close communion and fellowship to one another, and they suffered with similar, uh, from similar things. And this was a message for Laodicea as much as it was for Colossae and the other cities then, and maybe as a, a, a letter and a message for us here today. As well, And it's because of this lukewarmness, because they haven't invited actually Jesus into, into, into their church, into their life, even though Jesus has all things, has all the powers, all things are through him and for him. This is why Jesus wants to spit them out of his mouth by their lukewarmness. Imagine having the creator of the universe knock at your door and you're less than interested. The one that created all things, that has power over all things, that can do all things, that sees all things, that's everywhere all the time, at any time, is knocking at the door, and we're less than interested to at least take a peek and to say hi. And ultimately, as I go to the second point here, lukewarmness. See, Jesus isn't impacted by it, but it impacts us when we don't open the door. Lukewarmness endangers our faith actually limits our experience of God. This lukewarmness wasn't because of false ideas that was going on in the church at that time, or teaching, or a lack of orthodoxy, meaning right kind of teaching. That, that wasn't what was going on. Uh, it sounded good. It looked good. It wasn't even because they didn't have a faith or really a belief in God. But everything that they're doing was leaving Jesus on the outside, it was a fact that there was, and because of this, there was the fact that there's, there's no passion and there's no zeal. They did not have deep conviction and passion from this faith that they declared that they had in God. Verse 15 continues in this way, I know your deeds, that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. So there's a lot of research done by Biblical historians that they suggests that the image comes from the source of water that Laodicea had. Because in Colossae, they had fresh uh, cold spring uh, water. And they had aqueduct system, um, Roman Empire, social studies, remember that? Uh, so they tried to uh, port the water through aqueducts uh, from Colossae to Laodicea, but from the cold springs at that time, by the time they made it to Laodicea, it, it wasn't cold anymore. It was lukewarm, or maybe it was at the warm healing waters of Hierapolis, which had warm hot springs, and they wanted some of that as well. So they had aqueducts that would ship this, these warm healing, this hot healing water from Hierapolis to uh, to Laodicea. But by the time it made it there, it wasn't hot anymore, but it was lukewarm. And this is. Uh, This is hard-hitting because as uh, Gerhard Kroldel, who's a professor emeritus of New Testament at Lutheran Theological Seminary, he puts it in this way. Here, Jesus is saying something that no preacher would dare to say if the Lord had not spoken it first, namely that ice-cold atheists and pagans are preferable to him than lukewarm Christians. Ouch. That hits deep. That cuts deep. Or as Daryl Johnson puts it, lukewarmness says that the amen and the arhe is not worthy of passionate faith. It's not worthy of a passionate response to this creator. But as we address this, as we talk about this, it's not to, to leave us here and be like, well, woe to me, that's not really the point here. It's actually to come towards Jesus because he has an invitation for us. But we need to see what causes ultimately this lukewarmness. Maybe it's complacency a word we've been using a lot through the seven letters. Maybe it's distractions from things of the world out there. Uh, maybe it's a lack of spiritual disciplines. We haven't been engaging with the things of God. Or maybe it's another word that keeps popping up in all the letters to the churches is a word called compromise. Compromise. Lukewarmness is the natural result of Compromise. Just like drinking the lukewarm water of the city, the church in Laodicea was drinking deep from the cultural waters of the city itself. That they're drinking deep from that well and not the well of Jesus. Now imagine I brought this cup here. You are at a restaurant or a cafe and you order a cup of coffee and the barista or the server comes and brings you this cup and you take a good sip It's lukewarm. That wasn't just an excuse for me to drink coffee. That's I'm trying to illustrate something. (laughs) And it's lukewarm. And you might be like, oh, that's disappointing. Because in Vancouver, a couple of latte six bucks. And this is, you know, I pay six bucks for this. (laughs) This is lukewarm. I'm dissatisfied. I'm disappointed. And in the same way, I think that's what a lukewarm faith does, not really to Jesus. I'm not saying he's disappointed because he is disappointed, but he is the creator of the universe, and he's not going to be bothered if we're not going to be part of his kingdom ultimately because he has many that are worshiping him, which we're going to go into the throne room in verse 4. That he actually doesn't need us to do any of this, but this lukewarmness, this lukewarm faith ultimately affects us. It disappoints us. It dissatisfies It's not because Jesus himself is dissatisfactory. It's because of the faith that we possess. Like how disappointing lukewarm coffee is or whatever, or tea, or your, your beverage of choice, lukewarm faith can leave us feeling spiritually unsatisfied and unfulfilled. It affects us. Lukewarmness hurts us, impacts us and our faith and how we see life. But how did the city get this way? Well, we see that self-sufficiency blinds us to our need for God and leads to spiritual bankruptcy. Verse 17, you say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Doing a little bit deeper dive into the history of the city, we'll see that it was wealthy. It was wealthy because it had many minerals, like, like, like gold. And it, had, it was rich from clothing like wool. It's like clothing that it was, it was known for. And also, it was known for its medicine because it had a medical school. Wealth from minerals, clothing from wool, and medicine from, from the medical school. And I'm not sure what the model of the city actually was, but it might as well have been, I have a need for nothing. How else do we see this in our current day and age, in, in our, our time in Vancouver as a church in Vancouver and in the West? Maybe it is money, finances. Maybe it is clothing. We have it all. Maybe it is health. But what about other things like power? We have all the power that I think I need, and I'm good. Or we have all the intellect and all the smarts, and I'm good, and all the education. And even as I was preparing this, There's a temptation, I'm not sure if we know this, as pastors and preachers and teachers of the word, uh, as leaders, that there's a temptation to read the commentaries and all the sources outside of the Bible itself before even reading and and spending time in communion with God. And I was preparing this. That was what I was convicted by. Like, do you actually want to spend time in God's Word as you're studying it and He's about to preach it? Or are you going to look at all these other sources? And just so you can preach a nicely tied, a tightly bowed sermon so that it sounds good on a Sunday. Or are you actually more interested in encountering me? There's many ways that we can say, I have a need for nothing. And I'm not sure what it is for you. But we see this to be true in this text and the warning that Jesus gives, that self-sufficiency leads to this this spiritual complacency, that seeking physical affluence to spiritual bankruptcy and self-satisfaction to actually false success. That was the temptation in Laodicea. That was what was going on in that day and time. It's the thinking of How, if I have everything, what else could I possibly need? What else could I possibly need? Yet, as Jesus observes here, and as he corrects the church in Laodicea, he said that though they have money in the bank, they're actually spiritually poor. Though they have medicine and eye salve that heals the eyes, they're actually spiritually blind. Though they have the best wool and the best clothes, they're actually spiritually naked that their physical state did not represent their spiritual state. It was earlier in the month that, uh, the, that this report came out. I'm not sure if you saw this in the news, the World Happiness Report, uh, the index of the happiest cities and uh, countries uh, from around the world. Uh, there are six key variables to measuring happiness. There's, the inc- there's income, uh, healthy life expectancy, having someone to count on, so relationship uh, in times of trouble, generosity, freedom, and and trust, and lastly, the absence of corruption in business and in government. Now, you can read the report, but what's interesting is that most of the top 10 are in Scandinavian countries. I'm not sure what that means, (laughs) but the Scandinavian countries are known to be uh, the happiest, like Finland, Denmark, and Iceland. That's the top three uh, if you're looking for a place to visit. Um, Those are good places to go. Uh, Canada is number 13. Uh, in in the world. But I wonder, though, as I look at this list and I look through the six points of happiness, it mentions nothing about the spiritual life. Uh, It doesn't measure anything about the spiritual life and how, what's, it doesn't answer the question of the meaning of life, the purpose of life, how how, how spiritually rich we are within uh, the people of that country. As I was looking at this list and as they're describing each country, I was wondering, maybe you you would wonder this too, is like what would be on your list for happiness? What would be on your list for a joyful life, for a life that is good? And here the argument that Jesus makes is that if Christ is not in it, you're missing out. You're missing out on all things, the greatest thing. You're missing out on life itself. Jesus' words here are stern. They're stern, and it's serious as we're reading through this text. But they're not angry. There's a difference. And why am I saying this? Jesus' words are stern, but they're not angry, because Jesus' words are out of love. It's out of this great love for us that he corrects the church out of this great love that he has this conversation, out of his love that he has his word that's preserved for us so we can repent and turn and have a relationship with him. It's out of love that he wants a relationship with you, a life with you. And that leads to the, the, um, that leads to the last point here, which may not be on here. <laughs> the last point here, which is this encountering Jesus Surpasses all earthly treasures and brings unmatched joy and purpose. Encountering Jesus surpasses all earthly treasures and brings unmatched joy and purpose. We read this in verse 18 to 19. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich. And white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness. And salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love, there it is. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. It's actually when we experience the discipline, the rebuke from God, it's actually his love for us that wants you to receive this, this, this life. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. Though the church made Jesus sick and wanted, wanted to spit them out of his mouth, he still wanted to be with them because of his great love for them. And what Jesus gives is even better than what the world can ultimately offer. That's the message is clear here. That what he gives is ultimately best for you and for your life. We read this again from Apostle Paul in Ephesians 2, 4-5. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. He is rich in all things, and God decides to freely give to you and to me so that we can live life to the fullness and to experience this fullness in him. So he says in verse 20, here I am. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens his door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. The phrase here I am in other translations like in the ESV is translated as behold uh, or in the NLT is translated as look. But the point is, is to center our attention. Here I am. Behold. Look. I'm here. Everything you've been looking for is right here. The life you've been looking for is right here. And when you open the door, I will come in. He's standing at the door and he is knocking. knocking. Jesus is standing at the door of your heart, and he's knocking, and he's not trying to sell you anything. He's trying to offer you everything. Have that sink in a little bit deeper. He's not trying to do anything with you besides give you everything that he has. Only good things, only the essence of life itself, the purpose that you're looking for, the hope that you're longing for, the healing that you so desire, everything is right there at the door. He's standing there knocking. He's trying to offer you everything. And he wants to come in. Every single day, he wants to keep coming into your heart, into your life and say, "I'm here, I'm present." But do we hear his voice? And we've been saying over and over again the past few weeks, like how how do we hear the voice of God? It's it's through Scripture when we read the Word of God. It's it's the voice of God itself. We, we pray uh, to hear the word of God. We hear the God through the Holy Spirit who guides us and teaches and convicts and empowers us, but we're also here through other believers. Right? We've been mentioning that, especially those who are mature in the faith and have a relationship with Christ. We listen to them because we believe that they have godly wisdom and they bring that and they further and grow our faith. And Jesus wants to come into your life because he's the only one who can truly satisfy the deepest longings of your soul. And not only does he want to just come in, we read this, those who are victorious and will sit, with, will, uh, will sit with me on my throne just as I was victorious and sat with my father on his throne. Anyone who has ears to hear must listen to the spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. If, that, if it's not enough that Jesus, the God of the universe, wants to come into your life, He's not only saying he wants to come into your life, he's also saying, I want to take you with me to the throne of God. It's not enough just for him to come into your life, but he's like, I'm going to take you and have you sit with me in the throne of God. What a Savior. What a God. How much love does he have for you and for me? So today, maybe you've never let him in your life before. And today is the start of day one. You're saying, God, I want you in my life. I want to open the doors to you. And I want to receive you into my life. Or maybe this is you. You've let Jesus in before, but he's standing in the foyer only. He's standing in one room. Maybe in the living room only. And you've contained him into that one room. And the call for you today is open up the rest of your life to him. Open up all the doors. The room called family, as Daryl Johnson puts it, the room called your work, the room called money, the room called sex, the room called sexuality, the room called friends, the room called recreation, the room called dreams, the room called fears, the room called anger, the room called depression, the room called wounded. That Jesus wants to come in, not into one room, but all rooms, and to bring you life and life to the fullest. And he's saying today, look, I am standing at the door, knocking, and I'm wanting to come into your life. I'm going to end this morning with a story of Eric Liddell, who's on the right side of the picture here, he's a Chinese-born Scottish Christian missionary and an Olympic athlete in the early 20th century. And he's featured in films like Chariots of Fire or on Wings of Eagles. But during the 1924 Olympics, what he was known for, he was favored to win the 100-meter race. But he discovered ahead of time that the race was scheduled to be on a Sunday. And he wrestled. He's like, that's my Sabbath that's my day with the Lord, and I'm not to exert any uh, to do work, and he wrestled with that, but the race was on, uh, on Sunday. So rather than compromise his beliefs, he chose to withdraw from the race, despite immense, immense pressure to do otherwise. So instead, he decided to compete in the 400-meter race, a race that he was not trained for, he didn't set out for, He's never run it at a competitive level at all. And against all odds, he won the gold medal, setting a new world record, in fact, in that time. And when asked how he did it, Liddell said, the secret of my success over the 400 meters is that I run the first 200 meters as fast as I can. Then for the second 200 meters, with God's help, I run faster. (laughs) I end here. And I know stories like this are inspiring, but I believe God is writing ins- inspiring stories in your life too, not winning gold medals necessarily, but, but you are winning gold medals in your home, in your relationships, in your workplace, in the things of the faith. This story is a powerful reminder that when we put our faith in Christ first and we allow him in, he can help us to overcome the obstacles and the challenges that we face in life. So I don't know what you're going through, I'm not sure of the questions that you have, but what I am sure of is that Jesus is standing at the door and he's knocking and he's saying, let me in and let me show you what I can do. Let's pray. Father, let's thank you for your grace and for your mercies that are ultimately new every morning. I thank you, God, that you, Lord, are just, and true, and merciful, that you have this deep love for us, and that though you are God of the universe, and though you have all things and need nothing, God, you choose to come in the form of a human being in Jesus, Jesus being born as a baby in the cradle, ultimately to die a death that he didn't deserve, so that we can have new life in you. Father, I thank you for this life, and I pray for all of us, God, For those of us that desire this life, that wants to open the door today, I pray at this moment, we're saying, God, we fling open the doors of our heart and we allow you to be in our lives at this moment. Take hold, come freely. Give us joy, give us healing, give us a comfort. Let us know our purpose. Allow us, Lord, to live a life that's honoring, glorifying to you. And Father, we thank you for your rebuke and your discipline because it is out of love. God, I pray at this moment that we'll just experience, for, parts, for, for those of us that are experiencing shame and guilt, I pray, Lord, that you will cover us with your love, that we would experience your love at this moment that says, son, daughter, you're a love more than you ever know. Thank you, Lord, that we can find peace in you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.